We're going to continue on talking, uh, continuing conversation we began last week. Remember, we uh, got into Luke chapter 4, and we came across this word devil, that Jesus was led uh, into the wilderness by the devil to be tempted. And, and we paused on that word because so much of our cultural conditioning is to just only believe deeply in the things that we can sense and taste and touch and feel. And, and the demonic, you know, Hollywood spends a lot of time on it. Some sort of, some sort of extremes of the Christian community spend some time on it. But as a matter of practical reality, most of us are just kind of like, eh, okay. Um, and so what we, what we did last week was just to note how much of Jesus' ministry is framed in an understanding that Jesus comes to wage war against the adversary and to set people free. And he certainly says this in, in Luke chapter 11. We uh, will start in verse something, thinking verse 17 is my guess. Yes, Jesus is so successful as an exorcist that he actually, his opponents actually claim that he's in league with darkness because he's so good at casting it out. And so Jesus responds, he says, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his what? His kingdom stand. In other words, his response is, listen, if by Satan I'm casting out Satan, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. His kingdom would be divided against itself and will be fall. But notice... Jesus is now speaking not just of his kingdom. He goes around announcing something called the kingdom of God. Now he's speaking of another kingdom, a kingdom of someone called the Satan. The Satan is, is really a title. It's only used as a proper name a couple of times. But, but it means the slanderer, the enemy, the adversary. And the biblical teaching, as we saw last week, is that there, there, there exist spiritual beings of power and intelligence who are created but still powerful who live in rebellion against God. And Jesus frames his ministry in terms of of resisting this rebellion. In fact, jump down to verse 21. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So here's the idea. Jesus is accused of being in league with darkness because he's so successful at combating it. He says, okay, point number one, uh, darkness isn't going to cast itself out. It's at cross purposes with itself. It would never do that. But secondly, he says, really what I'm doing, consider your house and consider you had a security guard. What I'm doing in order to rob the house, I have to take care of the security guard. So when you see me casting out demons, I'm just taking care of the security guard so I can plunder his possessions. And those possessions turn out to be human persons. Now, the question I want to ask today, and by the way, if you're new to the Bible, new to Jesus, you're going to think some of this is crazy. And I want you to know that I know you're going to think some of this is crazy. And I've thought it was crazy myself. And so that's okay. So some of the points we'll make kind of add up. Relevance is about half an hour from now. Go to Genesis chapter 1. Because what I want to do is I want to spend a bit of time looking at how we got into this situation to begin with. If Jesus shows up and says, yep, my whole ministry is about warfare. Well, okay, how did that happen? So let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is this poetic narrative where Moses is recounting the creation story. And notice there's this really interesting, we look at it all the time, verse 26, 
where the, the, the flow of the narrative is interrupted when, verse 26, God says, let us make humanity in our image and in our likeness so that they may what? Rule over fish in the sea, birds of the sky, livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And he created the male and female in his image so that they would rule. Now, rule doesn't mean strip mine, pollute, destroy. Rule means to steward. So the image would be like the earth is a house. God is the owner of the house. And the human beings were the property managers. We, we were to take care of this creation of God's. And, and in virtue of our caretaking, we were invested with small amounts of creativity, of power, uh, of things to like take creation somewhere that blessed other people and brought glory and honor to God. That was our original vocation. Central to that vocation was our authority over creation. But then in chapter 3, verse 1, a bit of the creation tempts our earliest parents into disobedience. Now, if you're not into talking snakes, I understand, but that's the story. So chapter 3, verse 1, we meet a serpent, and a serpent moves along the ground. The serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, and then he begins to call into question a command God had given our first parents. There was one particular tree they were not to eat the fruit of. So, what did this enemy focus them on? The one tree they were not supposed to eat from. And so, the serpent says to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Yeah, we, we, may, not eat from, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden. And they go on this back and forth where ultimately, verse 6 The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some, she ate it, she gave some to her husband who was with her, and they ate it. And thus, human beings who were supposed to have authority over creation actually listened to creation rather than the creator and entered into disobedience. So now the issue is that it's flipped. Instead of human beings representing God to the earth, now the human beings are listening to the creation rather than the creator and have so given away the dominion they were supposed to have. God, of course, comes. He sees, the, he sees what has happened. Verse 15, he speaks to the serpent and he says in judgment, I will put animosity between you and the woman, between her between, excuse me, your offspring and hers. And then there's this like he that's introduced here. So it's in plural, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. And then there's a he who will come and crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. And we believe this is kind of the earliest promise that God is about to do something that will reverse the introduction of sin and death into the world that just occurred. But I want you to notice Now, what is life going to be characterized by? Enmity. That now this this cosmic, this this rebellion that that was in human hearts, now now it's going to be like made permanent, at least for a time being. And so the scriptures talk about the, the fact that rebellion isn't just a human issue, but it was an angelic issue too. Now look at me for a second. Now we're going to get into some crazy stuff. 
you may be thinking, we've been in crazy stuff, but let me take it even crazier. Okay, so this is going to raise more questions than it answers. There are people that are going to disagree with what I'm about to say. The goal isn't for you to agree. The goal is for you to wrestle with the text with a group of people and come to your own conclusions, okay? Let's fire up the iPad. The point of this series of slides is to say that there seems to be an undercurrent in the Old Testament that speaks that rebellion didn't just happen in the human realm, it happened in the angelic realm too. So you get a passage like Genesis 6. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Now this is one of those like really wacky passages because there are some that read the phrase sons of God as code for angelic beings. That what angels did is they manifested themselves in the flesh and they began to marry with humans and produce children. Now, I no idea how that exactly works, except to say this begins the flood account where God looks at the earth and says, it is so wicked, I have to literally start over with one family. The idea, though, and, and, and again, there are other ways of understanding sons of God here, But the point I want to begin to make is that there are these hints in the Old Testament that something is wrong, not just in the human heart, but in the angelic world too. In fact, we flip over to the book of Daniel. Daniel has received a vision. Daniel prays, hey God, what does this vision mean? And then he waits three weeks for an answer. An angel shows up and notice what the angel always has to say. In angel training school, they always say, first off, you have to say, do not be afraid. So, do not be afraid, Daniel. 21 days ago, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard and I've come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Now he's not speaking of a human prince. This is an angel speaking. So he's talking about another angel who had authority over the Persian kingdom. There's a passage in Deuteronomy that seems to suggest that angels had authority over nations. Right? I know. If you're going, I don't get this. Welcome. So, 21 days, one angel was in battle with another until then Michael, one of the chief princes. All right, so, anytime you meet a Michael, okay, just know there's an extra degree of power (laughs) when you meet someone like that. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen. So, why doesn't God always answer prayer? Well, one of the answers is, well, we sent the angel right away to answer the prayer, but he was in battle for three weeks, and so he had to call back up. And you go, really? Right? Does anyone else go, really? Really? But what I want you to see is that there were now powerful angels resisting God's will on the earth. In in fact, you get this really interesting psalm where God seems to speak to other gods. Now, these are small g gods. This This is code for angels. God presides in the great assembly. So the image is like he's sitting with his council. He renders judgment among the gods. 
Now again, there's only one God. Don't get confused by the word. He's talking about powerful spiritual beings, but they're still created. They're not eternal. They're not infinite. But notice, he's judging them. He says, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, but, and you are all sons of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. So it's almost, the image is almost God speaking like judgment over other angels. Now, there are other ways to understand this, but notice what the New Testament says. Second Peter, for if God did not spare angels when they what? But sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held of judgment. And then, and then Jude, hey Jude, though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains of judgment. Now if you're going, what? Yes, I'm with you on the what. But there there is a thread of biblical teaching that suggests that rebellion didn't just happen in the human realm, it happened in the angelic realm. And it happened in a way so that the very structures of human society are fallen to, not just the people. Okay, in fact, flip over, not don't flip, I'm just going to flip on the iPad. Ephesians chapter 6. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and notice the words he uses, rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil. Now, He's not saying the same thing four times. There's actually a really compelling argument that can be made. He's delineating different classes of fallen angels. Now, again, there are some people that learn this, and they get so wrapped up into learning the names and the hierarchies that they get disqualified from following Jesus. Because the story, and the Bible, by the way, doesn't feed this. It just hints at it. Because the story isn't about the fallen angels. The story is about how Jesus triumphs over everything. So I bring this up not to confuse anybody or not to like feed into an unhealthy fascination, but to simply say there is a thread of Old Testament teaching that suggests that it's not just individuals, individual humans that are fallen, but also angels that are fallen too. And these angels, some of them seemingly have authority over human structures. And so it's not just individual human beings that are fallen, but it's human institutions that are fallen too. And that is why when we talk about Nazi Germany, the sum is greater than the individual parts. There's something super added. There's something energizing. A mob mentality. When you see violence overtake a group, it's, it's bigger. It seems like it's bigger than just the individual human disobedience there. So I want to paint that picture in order to simply make this point. There exists on the earth to this day an opposite but unequal kingdom that is governed by this prince of these fallen angels called the Satan. He is known as the adversary, the enemy, the tempter, the deceiver. He goes by various titles. 
But this kingdom is not a battle, it's, and it's, it is a battle, but it's not a battle of equals, it's a battle of opposites. And the scriptures insist that Hugh and I, in simp- in, simply in virtue of being born, are born into the bad kingdom. Go, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. You and I, by simply in virtue of being human, are born into this dark kingdom. Romans chapter 5, notice what Paul says here. When he's reflecting on the effects of the disobedience of our first parents, he says, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death came through sin, and in this way death came to? Because all sinned. So the idea is there was this initial breach of evil into the world, and it just has rippled outward to, to the point where Paul will say in Romans chapter 8, even creation itself groans under the weight of sin and rebellion. So if you're here and you're imperfect, if you're here and you're a screw-up, if you're here and you're a failure, you're in really great company. Because that is all of us. And for proof, I give you children. We were all children once. Some of us have children. And they're beautiful. They're glorious. They're wonderful. But no one has to teach them to be selfish. No one has to teach them to insist on their own way. No one has to teach them to be ungrateful. We have to always teach them the opposite, right? There's something, it seems, in the very core of us that's bent. So point number one, there exists an opposite but unequal kingdom on the earth. Point number two, we're born into that kingdom. Point number three, that's why Jesus says you have to be born again. He doesn't mean literally when he says you have to be born again. It just means your first physical birth brought you into the kingdom of darkness. A new birth has to bring you into the kingdom of light. Go if you would to Colossians chapter 1. Now relevance is 10 minutes out. I know, seriously. Colossians 1, verse 13. For God has rescued us from the dominion, that's kingdom, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. So how do we understand the work of Jesus? The work of Jesus, death on the cross, triumph and resurrection, ascension to the right hand of the Father, includes but is not limited to the forgiveness of your individual sins. Hallelujah for the forgiveness of our individual sins. But bigger than that, He's rescued us out of slavery and into freedom. Out of lies and into truth. Out of darkness and into light. So what the New Testament writers will continually say is, listen, live as children of light. Don't go backwards into the darkness. So here comes our last, final, and most relevant point for the morning. For those of you that have put your faith and trust in this Jesus, you are now choosing between these two kingdoms all the time. When we hear the phrase spiritual warfare, the vast majority of us picture the exorcist. Someone possessed by a demon, I've got my crucifix, I've got my holy water, and we're just going to go to war against this demon. And I've unfortunately or fortunately seen some pretty crazy things in my life to lead me to believe that Scripture (laughs) speaks of this rightly. That there is a sense that Individual demons can oppress individual people. 
But what I want you to consider this morning is that spiritual warfare also includes the way that you live. You're either feeding the darkness or you're feeding the light. You are constantly choosing between kingdoms. Go if you would to 1 John. And if you don't know where that, where that is, it is right before 2 John. I love that. Love it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Now, if you're here and you're wondering... Is this guy the normal teacher? <laughs> yes, but twice a year we bring in a really good one. And so that if you can just hold out. 1 John 1, 5. Now notice this. Now, th- these two kingdoms, they're given lots of different metaphors and analogies and pictures in the Scriptures. And so John, if you read his Gospel, if you read his epistles, his favorite is light and darkness. That's code for kingdom of death and kingdom of life. Kingdom of God, kingdom of Satan. Light and darkness is the way he frames this. Notice what he says in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. But then notice, he's writing to Christians. If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet what? Walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. In other words... What kingdom you're choosing has nothing to do with what you are saying you're choosing. It has everything to do with how you really live. So it doesn't matter if you're walking around saying, yeah, I'm choosing light, I'm choosing light, I'm choosing light, if, in fact, your life betrays otherwise. And he gives an example of something uh, in verse 9 of chapter 2 that I think is very relevant. Chapter 2, verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light... All right, a follower of Jesus, but hates a brother or sister, and here he's meaning another believer, is still in darkness. So, let's talk about hatred for a second. How many of us, if asked, who is my enemy, can think very specifically of people or groups of people? Yeah, there are a few of us. Thank you for being honest. I I can think of a few. Um, And there is a sense in which spiritual warfare in the Bible not only includes casting out demons, but living in a way that resists the hatred that comes easily. So feeding that, that's kingdom of darkness stuff. Forgiveness, reconciliation, that's kingdom of light stuff. Flip over, if you would, to the book of 2 Corinthians. See, spiritual warfare turns out to be how you live every day as you're choosing between kingdoms. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, in 1 Corinthians, a man named Paul is writing to a church. And there is somebody in pretty blatant sin in the community. And evidently, the sin is very public. The sin is very ongoing and repetitive. And Paul says, listen, for the sake of of the community, you have to expel this person from it in the hope that their separation from the fellowship of believers will make them come to their senses and they'll repent. So that's in in the first letter, 1 Corinthians. Evidently that worked because in 2 Corinthians, Paul is again talking about this issue and notice what he says in verse 8. He says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for this person. Another reason I wrote you previously was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Because that's not, that's not fun to ask somebody to not come any longer to a church. 
But notice what he says here. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not what? Outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now listen. Paul spends, and so does the New Testament, on, he spends a ton of time and energy describing how believers are to be with each other. And the reason he spends so much time on it is because, I, I don't know if you know this, but people in church aren't perfect. I know it's shocking. So there are all of these commands. Forgive one another. Be patient with one another. Encourage one another. Why? Because we're all screwed up and we're in process. Right? But notice, in this instance, had they chosen not to forgive and to restore this person, they would have been outwitted by their enemy. Evidently, how the body treats itself is an issue of spiritual warfare. So, let's, let's pretend this would happen. Person A is upset with person B. What's the Bible say to do? What should person A do? Go talk to person B. And be reconciled. But what does person A normally do? Talk to person C through F. <laughs> about how crazy person B is. Right? And usually, so they all kind of agree with each other about how crazy this is. And they feed this kind of critical, divisive sort of thing, right? They gossip and they slander. And no one from that group goes to the person. You know what that's called, brothers and sisters? That's called sin. And that is darkness. And that is one of our favorite pastimes. Just taking shots at each other. And never going to the person. This, the Bible couldn't be clearer on this one. Go to the person and be reconciled. We think slander, not a big deal. But when it's listed next to homosexuality as darkness stuff, and we're going to make a big deal of that one, I just like us to be consistent. Right? It's a spiritual warfare issue how you treat your brothers and your sisters. Go if you would to Ephesians chapter 4. All of a sudden, this gets really practical, doesn't it? Paul, and I hate this, because even though the Bible says my enemy is not flesh and blood, man, flesh and blood is much easier to shoot at. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, verse 26, Paul quotes this saying, he says, in your anger, do not sin. And then he adds to it, he says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, the word foothold means, in Greek it means room. It means a place to stay. See, we labor under the false illusion that we're filled with the Holy Spirit so we can't be demon-possessed, and that's true. But the Bible doesn't talk a lot about demon-possession. It talks a ton about demonization, and Christians can be demonized. You have utterly, you've been set free completely and absolutely in the name of Jesus. But if you feed the darkness too much, you can still come under it's authority. So let's talk about anger. Anger is kind of an embarrassing thing to admit that you wrestle with, right? Pride, yeah, that's kind of universal. Lust, yeah, yeah, greed, yeah. But anger. I mean, how many of us in either marriage relationships, family relationships, working relationships, either are or know somebody who is terribly, terribly angry? 
And one of the things that the Scriptures say is, listen, you don't, you got to wrestle with that and deal with that, not just because you're nice moral people, but it's because if you don't, you're actually giving room for the adversary. So the Scriptures, always, they're always talking about being reconciled, asking forgiveness, washing the feet of those that will even betray you, right? Blessing those that persecute you. Is it just for them that you do that? No, it's for you. That is what it means to walk in the light. It means that you don't do it perfectly, but when you mess it up, you're humble enough to ask for forgiveness. I mean, so, a couple Saturdays ago, my wife and I, we fight once every five years. And this was our, yeah, yeah. So, we start, so it's a Saturday, and I'm preaching on spiritual warfare the next day, and then I knew this one was coming. And we start sniping at each other. And I'm a much better sniper than my sweet wife. My sweet wife is an internal processor, and she'll have the perfect comeback about two days after the conversation. <laughs> Can I get an amen from you internal processors? I'm an outward processor, no filter, and I'm going, you know, and she's just saying, I don't even know what I'm thinking. Just let me catch up. So we start sniping, just little snipes. And, and, and in the middle of that, God takes the, a, a velvet-covered two-by-four, and he just smacks me upside the head. And what I'm not saying is that the demons were behind the argument. But what I am saying is whether or not I continued it was an issue of spiritual warfare. Do you see? What I'm saying is the way that you live feeds the darkness or feeds the light. There is no other option. When you sit and stare at pornographic images, the temptation is to think, well, that's just between me and the computer. I'm telling you that is an institutional evil that you are feeding and you are ceding authority in your heart over to it. Why does racism matter? Just because we're nice people? No, we believe that we are to live in revolt to the powers that want to label, classify, and divide humanity in all of these different ways. I mean, Paul couldn't be clearer. In Christ, there is not male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. All of that stuff is rendered obsolete. But it's an issue of warfare. Why? Because when you turn your back on the reconciliation that Christ offers, all you're doing is feeding darkness. Why is violence such a fascination for our community? Right? We have entire sports that are dedicated to two people pummeling each other into one. Is it, why do we care about that? Is it because we're Puritans? Why do we care about what we watch? How many Christians are held in absolute fearful captivity because all they do is fill themselves with talk radio? I mean, do you, Google fear-based advertising and see how effective it is. So if all you're doing is saturating yourself with political fear, it's really hard to be a person of hope in that scenario. So are you feeding the darkness or are you feeding the light? End of story. With your sexuality. I mean, the Scriptures say, the tongue holds the power of life and death. How many of you have been devastated by words spoken over you? And how many of you have been strengthened by words of goodness and truth and beauty spoken over you? I mean, men and women, yes, we're redeemed from the bad kingdom, but please don't think that now you just sit and your job in terms of spiritual warfare is just to look for demons and to cast them out. That may be a part, but it's much more radical than that. The reason we live 
generously is because we want to revolt against the powers that sit behind greed. The reason we seek forgiveness and to be reconciled, we want to revolt against the powers that say revenge and that hurting another person in response to your hurt is the way to find satisfaction and fulfillment. See, we are the most subversive group of people in the history of the world, but far too often we're just adding to the darkness instead of subverting it. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to see, I want you to see your life as warfare. It's not warfare where you're bashing flesh and blood, but it's warfare where you are intentionally, imperfectly, but progressively living in a way that Paul will describe as shining like stars. For me, this brings and calls forth tons of repentance. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to invite us just to consider a couple of questions. Would you close your eyes for a moment? These aren't fun topics for me to talk about. They're not fun questions for me to ask. But let me ask them. Is there a place where you have given the enemy authority and influence in your life? Is there a window that's been opened? Window of pride, the window of lust, sensuality or greed, hatred, unforgiveness, slander or gossip, sexual morality, porn. people called not to live in darkness, but to live in light. And we're not called to be afraid or obsessive, but to be aware and hopeful. So if you're like me, perhaps God brings something to mind. You bring that before Him. And I do believe there's a place for renouncing that thing. Of not only claiming forgiveness, but of renouncing that way of life. And asking God what repentance looks like? What does it look like to close that door? What does it look like to forgive? What does it look like to be reconciled? What does it look like to humble yourself and ask forgiveness? And so in a moment of quiet, would you just ask? Father, we are a group of people that seek to join the revolt against the powers and the principalities that was so beautifully manifest in the life and ministry of Your Son. And we pray that Your Holy Spirit would be poured out over this collection of people so that we might with courage turn our backs on those things that add to the darkness and bring us under its power and walk faithfully towards those things that are true and good and beautiful. And so, Father, would you do work for us that we can't do ourselves? Examine us, test us, heal us, forgive us, beckon us into freedom, we pray.